0: Welcome to the RSA Events podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. So David, you are professor of comparative archaeology at University College London. You're the author of three books including What Makes Civilization and you're here today to talk to us about the absolutely fantastic uh, the Dawn of Everything co-written with the the, the late uh, great anthropologist, David Graeber. And I think we'll talk about David in a moment to kick things off. But the book is absolutely fascinating. I've I've been, I've not just been reading it, I feel like I've been immersed in it. Uh, And from everyone I speak to, it has that effect. And it's already definitely become one of those books that I'm hearing about people gifting to others, not for any special reason, but out of a kind of zeal to share some of what you and David have unlocked. It's a really fascinating look at the earliest parts of human history uh, and it sets out to radically transform our understanding of the story of humanity and offer us new ways of imagining freedom and of organising society. So, I mean, let, let's talk about David first up. Really, really sad that he's, he's not been here for... You know, a, a lot of the kind of building momentum of this book, and he's is, is not here to share the kind of amazing things he would have gone on to write with us. Be really interesting to know about the process of writing this with him and the interdisciplinarity of it. And I, I think I have maybe a follow-up question on that as well. But let's let's begin with that.
1: David was my friend, and and I always make a point of of emphasising this because when I started as an academic about 20-something years ago, I had lots of friends in my university. And I have less now, and it might be because of me. Maybe I've just become a more sort of dislikable person. But I get the feeling that actually making friends has become harder and harder in many walks of life. And uh, actually, friendships really important because it's based on trust and and David and I kind of hit it off I guess intellectually initially just hanging out talking about what have been going on in our fields for the last 20 or 30 years because another thing that's really happened in universities is that people don't talk very much across the arts and the sciences or even across and it was interesting listening to the previous speaker uh, say you know God help us if we're looking to historians to tell us about the future. But, you know, I was reflecting on this and thinking, well, the one thing we definitely know about the future is that we've got no idea what's actually going to happen. So if we're not going to listen to historians, you know, who are we going to listen to? Or different, you know, kinds of historians, social scientists. But I think it's an indication of this kind of I guess compartmentalization or something would be the word of just our brain activity, you know, our intellectual activity. So we actually found, despite being two people who are probably not. Particularly good at being specialists. David spent many years in Madagascar interviewing people, doing ethnographies. I spent a lot of time writing about obscure bits of ancient Egypt. Um, but both of us are kind of sort of um, rabid consumers of other other people's work, and yet uh, discovered that we had almost no clue what had been going on in what should be a you know they're like sister disciplines. So something's really gone wrong there, uh, where even people who are curious maybe don't know what the latest uh, consensus on Stonehenge is, or to the Iceman, or the origin of cities, or whether the state you know, originated 6,000 years ago or 200 years ago, that kind of thing. So through that kind of shared curiosity and just sense of surprise at at what we didn't know about each other's fields, um, we developed this friendship. And it it was just a kind of pleasure really from beginning to end to work with David because he had no... You know, people sometimes say, well, if you want to be a scholar and a researcher, you've got to be objective. You know, you've got to drop your political convictions and kind of elevate yourself into this Richard Dawkins like oh sorry did I say that I got uh, (laughs) you know where you're sort of somehow floating above everyone else on the planet and you've got this kind of god's eye view on what's going on now you know just a moment's reflection tells you that's basically bollocks I mean nobody (laughs) can do that Uh, it makes much more sense intuitively, I think, to reflect critically, to be critical about your own standpoint uh, and to be transparent uh, about, you know, why you feel a particular issue is worth researching. And in this particular book, um, we are very transparent, though, you know, we think something's gone terribly wrong with most people's understanding of what you might call the broad sweep of human history. You know, the origin of our species, Um, were we always like this? Is the current state of war and climate disaster just a kind of inherent outgrowth of human nature? Or was there a point in history when actually we weren't like this and something went terribly wrong that changed us? And if so, what was that? Was it the origins of agriculture? Was it living in cities and populations growing um, all these questions you know, have been answered in various ways for hundreds of years, but what really struck us when we started working on this book is that most of those answers take almost no account of the evidence that's actually accumulated <laughs> over the last 50 years or so. It's like we're I mean, sort of caught in this weird time warp.
0: Yes, how, how kind of dominant narratives became fixed uh, and loomed over anything that came afterwards and uh, i mean a a key a key motif that you return to again and again in the book is how we've almost become stuck in, in our conception of how civilization progresses or how different possibilities open up but also funneled into a sort of single set of possibilities almost as well um Let's unpick that a bit more. and You kind of begin really talking about these sort of twin fatalistic visions of Rousseau and Hobbes about how how civilization has evolved. Let's let's talk about that a bit to, to give people that context. It kind of
1: goes back to how we started working together. I mean, the book took us over 10 years to write, um, not because we're terribly lazy, um, but just because we d- we didn't, sort of imposed deadlines, so we did other things in between. We did it um, sort of when we felt like it, when it felt like fun. But that means we started the process in about uh, 2010-ish, uh, and it was all in the wake of the big financial crisis 2008 and if you went into a bookshop around that time you would see just countless books on inequality everyone's talking about inequality there've even been critiques of the you know what's sometimes called the inequality industry kind of thing that's talked about at places like davos and everyone seemed to be writing about inequality without really defining what they were talking about and there was a lot of new speculation are actually quite sort of old speculation about the roots of inequality. What are the origins of social inequality? It's one of those questions that's been going round and round in circles for hundreds of years. And we ourselves started off wanting to give a new answer to it, using all this evidence from our fields. And then we realized in the process of doing that, that the question was trapping us into a certain way of thinking. Like when you talk about feeling kind of locked on a certain trajectory, that's how we felt about the origins of inequality. Because if you think about it for a moment, it's a pretty strange question to ask in the first place. First of all, it assumes we know what inequality means. You know, there's a whole range of questions there about, are we talking about wealth inequality? Are we talking about inequality of opportunity? Uh, What's the opposite of inequality? Is it everyone being the same as each other or everyone having the right to be completely different? And you know, it's, it's just so vague. And then there's the idea of an origin, which immediately presupposes a lot of the things you want to actually investigate you know, if you say there's an origin of something, you're assuming there was a time without it. In this case, it means you're assuming there was a time when human beings all lived in something like a society of equals. But what's the evidence for that, actually? So we actually got really curious about the origins of the question. When did people first start asking, what are the origins of inequality? If it's not a very obvious question to ask. And actually we can pinpoint this to about sort of 1753 when one of the authors you mentioned Jean-Jacques Rousseau submitted an answer to an essay competition that was launched by an academy in the French town of Dijon and they posed exactly this question what is the origin of inequality among humankind and is it natural is it a, is it a natural state for us to be in and uh, Rousseau didn't win the competition. He, uh, actually, the judges refused to read his essay because he was over the word limit. But um, he, um, this would be very familiar to any, uh, anyone in higher education. Um, he, um, he came second, but nobody's heard of the guy who came first. But everyone's heard of Rousseau's essay which sometimes referred to as the second discourse. The first discourse was the one on the arts and sciences, and the second one was his discourse on the origins of social inequality, which has been picked apart, you know, a million times. It's one of the most widely read essays in history. And, um it's there that he gives us this very familiar story, which in many ways we're still stuck with, that yes, indeed, there was a time before inequality when we lived as hunter-gatherers. Now, if I say hunter-gatherers, that probably sends you to sleep in some cases, or it, it conjures up uh, you know, certain images in people's minds of maybe living in very small bands of people, living a very simple life with few material possessions, just foraging from the wild. And also uh, equality, the absence of things like private property, which for Rousseau began very clearly with farming. He talks about this moment uh, in the human past when for the first time some guy went out put a fence up around a particular piece of land and said, this is mine. And it was all kind of downhill from there. Populations grow with agriculture. Uh, People have to invent ways of defending private property. And before you know it, you have cities, and then you have to have some kind of central government just to prevent things falling into chaos. So it's kind of a almost a sort of Garden of Eden kind of story. The funny thing about it, well, there's two things that struck us about it. One is that people keep repeating it, although actually most of the evidence we have, which we go into in the book, suggests that there's really no substance to the, the story itself. I mean, it just doesn't fit even remotely uh, the picture that we have today of... The beginnings of agriculture, the origins of cities. The other kind of funny thing about it is that there's a line in the essay where Rousseau actually says, look, um, I'm just making this up. Don't take this as fact. This is not meant to be a reconstruction of what happened in human history. It's just a kind of thought experiment, if you like. And if people had taken it in that sense... I think we'd be having much more interesting discussions. But actually, instead, what's happened is that people have turned it into a story about what's sometimes called social evolution. The idea that there is, in fact, a kind of godlike uh, or, or superhuman force that, that funnels human societies down certain pathways of development, which leads to a kind of fatalism. You know, the idea that any kind of real structural change. Uh, is just inconceivable, which is when you end up instead arguing about, you know, genie coefficients and and tax thresholds and can we tweak around the edges a bit, but, you know, let's forget any idea of actually, you know, radically rethinking the kind of societies we live in. So a lot of human history, when it's told on that big scale, seems to be kind of mobilised to make us sort of depressed and feel very small and insignificant uh, against these great sort of waves, these forces of history supposedly crashing over our heads. And, you know, three things struck us about that. Um, Firstly, the stories are wrong. Secondly, it's a bit boring. It's a bit boring to keep telling the same story for hundreds of years, especially when it's wrong. And three, it's actually quite politically uh, worrying. I mean, if you're in a situation where the world is drifting by, and you've got lots of very clever people telling you, we're not on a particularly great course right now in terms of the planet uh, and and uh, and uh, conflict and poverty. It's probably not a very sensible thing to keep telling yourself that we can't do anything about it because of history, especially when that history is wrong. So those are the kind of motivations that, that led me and David to start off you know, trying to, um, I guess, bring readers up to speed with some of what we actually know about these big topics, the origins of agriculture, what it really meant for people to gravitate into cities for the first time, that sort of thing.
0: Brilliant. Oh, and um, as, as a kind of potted thing, and it's waxed and waned, or, or it has refined or, or kind of shifted over time, but basically common... Uh, sort of sense amongst many historians, anthropologists in, in, in lots of other disciplines is that there's this unidirectional, linear, universal progression across continents, across civilizations from bands to tribes to chiefdoms to states and, and also with this sort of implied evolution to you know, capitalist states from there alongside Rousseau and Hobbes, who had a, a similar vision to Rousseau in terms of state of nature, and then agriculture, property, civilization, but with a darker undercurrent. So instead of a, a you know, kind of innocent period before civilization, uh, uh, life being nasty, brutish, and short. But with, with both of them, and with this narrative in general, Quite early in the book, you evoke this sort of challenge to that narrative brought by what you call the indigenous critique, and you embody this in the figure of a a Native American sort of statesman and orator called Candiaronk. I'm sure people will be as fascinated as I was to learn more about this this character.
1: Yeah, it's funny, actually. A few months ago, I was in Canada, Hanging out with the uh, the, the Wendat, uh, who are a First Nation people, they live uh, all over the place, but some of them live on a, a reserve called Wendake, which is in a sort of suburb of uh, Quebec, and they actually have a lot of their own research going on 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 the history of the the Wendat to They're sometimes always referred to, also referred to as the Huron, uh, Huron Wendat Nation. And uh, there's actually a little street in Wendake. Uh, they, they are uh, French-speaking, because they were colonized by, by the French. Uh, and uh, there's a little street in Wendake called Candiaranque Homme Célèbre, uh, famous guy. Um, and I, I hope we've made him a little bit more famous. Uh, but actually, what we, what we say about this person in the book, I'll tell you a bit more about him. He was, uh, he was a very highly respected member of the Huron-Wendat nation in the 17th century. If you Google the Great Peace of Montreal, which is one of these big treaties that was signed in 1701, just before Kandiyarank passed away, you can actually see his his signature, his mark uh, on it. And um, He was a famous warrior. He was a diplomat. But we also have many independent accounts by Europeans, uh, who were not necessarily friends with people like Kandi Aronk, that he was also just this incredible intellect and speaker. And a lot of the societies of that region, what's now uh, part of Canada and upstate New York, basically the Great Lakes region. So these are people speaking Iroquoian and Algonquian languages. They were famous among European observers at that time for their um, political skills. Uh, They had a political system, which could be called democratic, depending how you like to define that term, where there were chiefs. Kandirunk was one of them. But a chief couldn't tell you what to do. Chiefs had no coercive power. So this was widely observed that if a chief wanted to engage people in some kind of collective undertaking, the only way he could really do it was to persuade them that it was a good idea. So the lack of coercion goes together with the cultivation of these very rich... These are people who didn't use writing, so they had very highly developed uh, oral cultures. So the lack of coercion went together with this culture of people basically sitting around having very deep discussions and debates all the time. And it's out of this particular culture of sophisticated argument that this figure, Candironc comes. The interesting thing about him um, is that he caught the attention of the French governor at that time, a man called uh, Frontignac, who also fancied himself as a bit of a debater. And we have records of Candiaronc actually being invited to the dinner uh, table of the French governor of that time to engage in debates about inequality, sexual habits, marriage, the use of money, whether we need monarchy and Christianity and religion. Now, all of this is happening before what we usually refer to as the Age of Enlightenment which is supposed to be, if you read Steven Pinker or somebody like that, it's the Enlightenment supposed to be something that just happens in Europe. It's just an outgrowth of you know purely European guys reading each other's books and talking to each other in salons. But here we've got what you might call a kind of proto-Enlightenment salon, before the Enlightenment. And it's happening out there in the colonies, in the French colonies of what Europeans referred to as New France at the time. And it's actually happening... As part of an encounter between Europeans and indigenous peoples. So there's actually a contribution there. There's a debt that we owe, which I think isn't acknowledged, generally speaking, to people like Kandiaronk. And if you read those exchanges, they're really, uh, they're very funny for a start. They're full of jokes. Uh, There's one bit where the European interlocutor is explaining, you know, the. The key tenets of Christianity, Uh, you know, there were many Jesuits over there at the time trying their hardest to convince uh, native peoples to convert to Christianity. So they're explaining the principles that there's one God, he sent his son down to earth to show us, uh, you know, what that means. And, you know, the reply comes back, well, if there's just one God and he's really that great and powerful how come we never heard of him? <laughs> I mean, how come it took you guys to come over here? And, you know, it's, it's full of these sort of witty kind of counter points and so on. And this mystified Europeans. They were saying, well, how can these people who've never read the classics, you know, they've never read their Quintilian or their Varro or their Plato, how can they do this stuff? You know, how have they've they got all these great comeback lines? So there's a whole kind of thing that we go into there in the book about this uh, what you call indigenous critique, which became hugely important in Europe in the 18th century. People started reproducing these dialogues. There were plays written about them. There was one play that ran for longer than Cats or Les Misérables in Paris by a guy called uh, Drevetier called the, the savage harlequin harlequin sauvage uh, who is actually uh, a member of the Wendat nation and he comes on stage and sort of performs a lot of these attacks on european civilization a lot of which is about money and our obsession with money and rank you know, the native peoples of that region often found it kind of comical that uh, French and English and Dutch would just defer to each other in the weirdest way. It was, it's a bit like that old sketch with John Cleese and and uh, you know the, the the two Ronnies, you are above me and he is below me, and therefore I will do what he says and you will do. But at the same time, Europeans are always competing with each other, so this has found this sort of mystifying. Now, you've got to remember this is all happening a few decades before the French Revolution. So this is pretty incendiary stuff. You've got these non-European people telling Europeans, you are like slaves. You know, we look at you and we see people who are enslaved to a king and to money. Uh, And um, something really interesting happens where the familiar story of human history that you and I started off talking about the kind of Jean-Jacques Rousseau version, is sort of invented as a counter-response to the power of this indigenous critique. It's something we go into in the book, where, to cut to the point, I guess the point that is made in opposition to the indigenous critique is, yeah, okay, equality, good, freedom, good, nobody's going to argue about those things. However... The only reason you can have them is because you guys are primitive. You live in so-called primitive societies, by which the people who are saying such things meant technology. You know, you live in huts, you don't wear clothes, uh, you can't produce commodities the way we can you know, guns, germs, and steel. You don't have the weapons to outfight us. That's the only reason you can have these uh, equalities. That's the only reason you can have women's freedoms, which were, you know, very rampant to European eyes. They couldn't believe the fact that these, here are societies where women could get divorced just like that. Many Native American societies, a woman's unhappy in her marriage, she'd leave her husband's shoes by the door, so when he came back from hunting or whatever, you know, it was, it was clear that he wasn't welcome anymore. And this kind of thing. And um, so the more familiar story of human history, where everyone gets divided up according to how they produce food. So you've got hunter gatherers back to sleep, you know, back to hunter gatherers. Simple people who supposedly don't have private property don't produce very much. They can be equal and free, but they're going to lose in the long game of history because they're supposedly primitive. Then you get farmers and agriculturalists, and, you know, you're into that story that leads up to us, industrialist, capitalist, urban, sophisticated. And, you know, the basic message is that you either have to go down that path or what's going to happen to you is what happened to all those people who were colonised. You're going to be the losers at the end of history. Of course, you know, that story... Apart from not really being based in very much except ideology um, is starting to look very unattractive because more and more of us are starting to look like losers you know with climate change and all the rest of it I think there's a real interest in going back to some of these foundational narratives looking at what they 're really based on critically
0: fantastic I'm clock-watching and thinking about... Again, we, we could have a three-, four-hour session and, and we, we would only scratch the surface and I, I, brought I do... 12 IPAs with 12 you. 12 IPAs, great. Well, we might hold forth at that bench out there afterwards, no, but um, definitely buy the book. I've got a couple more questions before we open it up, uh, I think. Something I'd like to acknowledge, although may, maybe let's not kind of delve into it, is... Um, how the book explores uh, power and the exertion of power. Uh, you mentioned through Kandirong, there's a great quote from, a, uh, I think again, from a Jesuit missionary talking about um, the Native Americans that he's, he's working with, living amongst, they have reproached me a hundred times because we, uh, we fear our captains whilst they laugh at and make sport of theirs. Uh, the authority of their chief is in his tongue's end only. Yeah. So this idea that um, authority is embodied more through charisma and through, through logic as well and the influence on the Enlightenment. Let's tackle that in a dual way, because I think one of one of the many beautiful and brilliant things about this book is the way that it really kind of vivifies history that can lie kind of dead and dry in textbooks and treaties uh, and brings it to life to give us possibilities for the future as well. Which were the examples that kind of most gripped you in in your kind of research and writing that you would kind of like to share with the audience to give that kind of vividity to them as well
1: yeah well one i've been thinking about a lot lately for reasons that will be obvious is ukraine Uh, when we started the book obviously it was before the russian uh, attack on ukraine um and it was one of the examples that really kind of Gripped my co author David because he he asked me very sort of innocently Are there any examples in human prehistory of cities that are egalitarian? Egalitarian cities. And I started describing to him these things that archaeologists started finding in Ukraine and Moldova around the 1970s. So we're still into Soviet archaeology here. It's during the Cold War, so a lot of these discoveries actually didn't make their way into Western European and American uh, thinking until very recently. But uh, Ukrainian and Russian mainly archaeologists at that time started recognising something really weird uh, from the air, initially, with aerial photographs. It's in the region of the modern city of Uman, and uh, it's, a, it's a huge agricultural area. It's on these incredibly rich, dark soils called Chernozem in Russian, and it's the area that's been the breadbasket. You know, it's why we've got the wheat crisis now in the Black Sea, Egypt, I'm told, is something like 80% dependent on Ukraine for wheat. I mean, can you imagine the consequences of what's going to happen? You know, But it all comes from this: these rich black soils, these Chernozem soils. And when most people think about the ancient history of that region, you know, if you've been to one of the big museums in uh, in uh, any of the countries around the Black Sea, you're going to see all the bling, all the shiny treasures from the Scythian tombs and the Thracian tombs. Um, but actually, before all of those step nomadic peoples like the Scythians and the Sarmatians, turns out there were cities, and they go back 6,000 years. So what these aeropl- what these pilots started noticing were these huge kind of anomalies in the soil Uh, In the agricultural off-season, they become visible. And they could see these great sort of rings in the earth, like big circumferences of something or other. So then they started investigating. They were quite pioneering, actually, uh, in archaeology, so they used ground-penetrating radar. And these cities, which are 6,000 years old, which for context means that they are as old as the first cities in the world, which are traditionally located where I do my field work, in Iraq and Syria, in the Middle East, so-called ancient Mesopotamia. So these ones are as old as those ones. They're covering roughly the same kind of area in hectares. It would be something like, you know, two to three hundred hectares, maybe populations in the tens of thousands. So suddenly we've got new cities. The interesting thing when they started actually looking into them is they looked nothing like the ones in Mesopotamia or Egypt or the Indus Valley. There were no temples. There were no palaces. They've excavated many of these sites. There are no royal burials. Uh, actually, there's very little evidence for any kind of inequality. They don't even seem to have had central storage areas or some kind of central administration. Actually, what's now been reconstructed, and they were making huge strides with this before the, uh, the war. There were a lot of international teams working in Ukraine. They've reconstructed how these things work now. And they're basically cities uh, based on the image of a circle. So you've got hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of houses arranged in concentric rings with streets and ditches in between, and they've even been able to reconstruct neighborhoods. And in each neighborhood, there seems to be basically some sort of collective assembly house. So the way archaeologists are reconstructing this is that here we have a society which managed to find a way for people to gather together in really vast numbers and govern themselves without... Doing all of the things that, you know, Jared Diamond or Fukuyama or Harari or these people tell us must happen when people start living in cities. You've got to appoint leaders. You've got to have an elite up there telling you what to do. And it's inevitable, you know, you're going to end up with some oligarch sort of trampling all over you. Uh, No, these are people who actually somehow managed to do it. We can't reconstruct With no writing system, you know, we don't know the intricate details of how their constitution was formed. But it's there, and it's really striking, and it suggests that actually there were other pathways to urbanism and city life. And the other really fascinating thing, just one more thing on this, archaeologists have actually managed to extract uh, pollen and seeds from cores, which they put into the earth in the vicinity of these sites. Now, what that allows us to do is actually reconstruct the environmental footprint. And it's really surprisingly light. So these guys living on the steppe forest region, they also managed to come up with a way of living in cities. It's not just one city. There are like 10 or 20 of these things in proximity to each other. And they managed not to burn out the environment as well. So, you know, they were on to something, clearly. And it's really fascinating what's happened. And again, you know, it makes me think about the previous speaker. People get really upset when you start... I mean, what you were saying before, John, that there's this standard idea that all human societies evolve through these stages, from bands to tribes, chiefs and state. Actually, you can't find many academics who would say, that's what I believe, but it's really interesting when you push back against it, people get really upset. So, for example, a lot of scholars refuse to call these Ukrainian things cities. If you're looking to read about them, you're going to have to Google something like mega-sites. They're sometimes called mega sites. I've seen them referred to as overgrown villages like villages that got too big for their boots or something. And it's really interesting because it shows you that there's an assumption there already in our very notion of what a city is, which says that it's got to have a financial district, it's got to have Buckingham Palace, it's got to have something sort of in the middle uh, which symbolizes inequality. Um, So there's actually kind of a, a battle going on over language here about what is a city which I fully intend to get stuck into. So we, we just call them cities.
0: Yes, amazing. I, there's a last question I feel I need to ask you on the transition, which means that, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to have time for audience questions, so apologies now. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, let, let's do that, actually. Um, we can maybe take one question <laughs> from the audience. You have a winning smile, sir. Uh, Could we have a microphone coming around to you? Um, Oh, whoa, sorry. Uh, Apologies in advance, it will be a question and a half. Um, Fascinating, thank you so much. Um, Especially on the indigenous critique, which I was not aware of, so thank you. Um, Why, um, you started to talk about inequalities, and I was wondering if you can tell us a bit, what do you think from the different definition of inequality, you believe is the most urgent for us to, to tackle or to look more closely. And the half of question is, um, you mentioned Steven Pinker a bit, and one of his uh, points is about that inequality not necessarily mean poverty, meaning a little bit that if everybody some sort of standard of living increase, maybe inequality is not as demon, demonized as we as we do. So just Your take on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think my answer to to both questions would be roughly the same, and it's what we say in the book. Um, Is that, you know, there's already an assumption in the question that what actually matters to most people is having roughly the same amount of stuff, like physical stuff. But actually, I think if you talk to people, you know, they love to put out these scare figures. Oh, 1% of the world's population owns 40% of the world's wealth. Now, some people probably get upset about that. I know lots of people who couldn't give a toss. They don't care how many cars somebody's got or whatever. What they do care about is the fact that some people can turn stuff into power and into influence over other people. And I guess, you know, our answer to your first question is that for us, the most important form of inequality is actually uh, the ability to tell other people that your life doesn't matter. You don't matter. You're insignificant. And you have no say in how we actually uh, conduct ourselves and govern ourselves. So in the book, we try to shift the debate from this rather vague idea of equality and inequality ...to another topic, which is freedom. And a lot of the book is about freedom, actually. Social freedoms. And I'm very excited because it's come out in Brazil this morning. And uh, Brazil and Amazonia is one of the areas we write about in the book a lot... ...where our whole picture of that region which until recently a lot of people thought of in this very kind of primitivist way, you know, the indigenous tribes of Amazonia, the Yanomami, almost like they're living in Rousseau's state of nature. It's one of those areas where archaeology has completely turned that on its head, and we know now that they had cities in Amazonia hundreds of years before Europeans even showed up. So I'm excited about Brazil this morning as well
0: fantastic and that's a great and that that note of hope to end on we're going to have to wrap it up now david again is going to be in the book tent signing books and if you have further questions and uh, all of the books of all of the authors that we have on this morning uh, are, are well worth your pennies but um thank you very thank much you, uh Thanks. just uh, uh, a, a quick final point with, with room for further applause in a moment. We, we have our, our final speaker of this RSA, Royal Society of the Arts uh, kind of curated session about to come up. Brilliant uh, author and thinker, Lola Olufemi in conversation with Liv Winter. As a pivot that there wasn't time to ask you about, but one of the really beautiful things about David and, and David's book is uh, really kind of looking at the the unacknowledged or the the buried centrality of women in social and civilizational evolution. So that's, that's something also to think about going into this next talk. Brilliant to see you all. Stay put or pop over to see David in the next temp, but don't go anywhere else. Thank you, thank you. And let's bring on Liv and Lola. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.